I really love being alive and I really love being in partnership with my wife and I really love the process of self-inquiry and dedicating myself to the love of truth. And these are things that keep me awakening uh, more and more as I progress through this life. Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is longtime Esalen teacher and leader, Perry Holloman. Perry is an internationally renowned massage instructor. He and his wife, Johanna, enjoy legions of faithful followers with their brand of deep body work. Perry is also a dedicated and trusted Gestalt practitioner, and together we explored a bit of the history of the last 40 years of the Esalen Institute, from dishwashing to dancing, from massage to Gestalt, and far beyond. Here's my conversation with one of the more articulate people running around the good state of California, Perry Holloman. Perry Holloman, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. My pleasure. And I wanted to start off the this talk with you by asking you about the your earliest impressions of Esalen, when, when you came and, and what the place was like when you arrived. I got here in March of 1979, and uh, I had been going to school on the East Coast and preparing myself for a life, a professional life, most likely as a lawyer. Uh, most of my friends, most of my peer group in college were interested in going into that vocation because um, if one didn't know what one wanted to be when one grew up at the school I was going to, one became a lawyer, one <laughs> went into the law. And so uh, that's what I thought that I was going to do. But something in, I guess you could call it my soul, was screaming, this is not my path in this life. This is not what I'm meant to do. And so I talked with my parents who were very generously uh, paying for my education and let them know that I felt like I was wasting their money at that point in time and would like to take some time off to sort of figure out what my direction in life was going to be. They said, well, how would you like to start out with a five day with David Schiffman at the Esalen Institute? Wow. And uh, I said, that sounds good to me. I had a job lined up in Europe after that. And I came to Esalen and uh, I can honestly say my, in the language of those days, my mind was so blown by what I experienced here. David introduced me to the world of Gestalt in that five day. And Gestalt is one of the oldest healing arts and awareness practices that has been taught at Esalen almost since uh, Esalen became a thing in 1962-63. Of course, the legacy of Fritz Perls continues to live on here in many different forms through many different teachers. But what I was introduced to at the time, although I don't think I could have articulated it in this way, was that Gestalt is a very powerful tool for supporting the learning and growth, learning growth and development of human individuals, groups, and organizations. The basic premise, you know, Gestalt, like Esalen Massage, if you watch 10 different Gestaltists work, it will seem like they're doing 10 very different things. However, 
what one will notice looking more deeply that all of the approaches have in common is the focus upon the development of awareness. So no matter how, you know, Dick Price, for example, was the purest, uh, he called himself a reflector. He liked to describe himself as something like an Indian tracker who would follow without disturbing, follow in the footprints of the person that he was facilitating to the point where their awareness combined with his support would have an illuminating effect on their ability to gather information about their experience moment to moment to moment. And that that in and of itself leads to learning, growth and development. Mm -hmm. So the idea in Gestalt is the more aware we are, the greater the potential that we will learn and grow and develop through our experience. And awareness is the factor which illuminates experience in such a way that we can see things, we can experience things from different perspectives. So were you immediately drawn to this uh practice of gestalt as I'm, I'm guessing you're around 21 22 when you, I was when you 20 yeah. 20 years old yeah I was I was you know I was attracted to all of the awareness practices both the somatically based practices the body work Esalen massage there was a, a brilliant teacher here named Al Drucker who um I remember I had been here about three or four weeks, and after my five day with David Schiffman, I started asking some people who I'd made friends with, is there any way that I can stay around here? Yeah. And because there's something here that I deeply resonate with, and I recognize that my life path would probably move in the directions that Esalen offered if I could find a way to be a part of the place. So like many before me, I was given a job as a dishwasher, a duck uh-huh. in the kitchen. <laughs> and about three weeks in, uh, a man named Al Drucker, who is this teacher that I was uh, referring to before, came in and he said, I'm starting um, a group, a uh, training group in deep tissue work for uh, people at the time, they called us Work Scholar Twos. Work Scholar Twos were the precursors to extended students. And I think I was the eighth Work Scholar Two ever hired by the place. So it was a, a relatively new thing at the time. So I was in this class with people like Dean Juhan, who has become uh, an incredible author and teacher of um, uh, many different somatic disciplines. A uh, number of other people who are no longer here at the place, although Shar, uh, Shar Pius was uh, part of the group that I was in. She's one of the senior practitioners and teachers of Esalen Massage. Over the course of the year, uh, myself and a number of other students, I think we numbered 12, something like that, uh, were brought into this world of somatic education by Al Drucker, and uh, he was also a devotee of Sai Baba, and uh, just a, a brilliant, brilliant man. He um, came to Esalen himself in a healing crisis. 
he had been working for the Pentagon uh, designing weapons and bombs uh, for the Pentagon. He was a very high-level, very talented engineer, and he developed liver cancer in the course of his work uh, for the Pentagon, and he came to Esalen, uh, I think, in 1968, looking to heal himself. And he healed himself in the roundhouse, what's now called the meditation house, uh, down in um, Hot Springs Creek, right at the bridge. So any of you that uh, who are listening to this transmission, if you have an opportunity to go and sit in the roundhouse in the meditation house at Esalen, it has quite a history to it. The brief story I'll tell about Al uh, beyond what I've just told is that um, he had an insight that if he took any pain medication to uh, deal with his cancer, he chose the Gerson therapy to heal himself. And that if he took any pain medication, it was going to interfere with the process of healing. So he described a process of about two weeks where uh, he was going through what we can think of, what we can call a healing crisis, where he said it felt like someone had his liver in a vice and was slowly turning it each minute tighter and tighter. And then um, he said he had an experience about two weeks in of dealing with that. If you can believe it, this man had a will that is stronger than anyone I've ever met in my lifetime. He um, said he had the experience. Suddenly he realized he was on the ceiling of the roundhouse looking down at his body writhing in pain. And he knew that it was over. At a certain point, he dropped back into his body and the pain went away mm. and the cancer went away. And uh, that was in 1969, something like that. And uh, Al Drucker passed away, I think, three years ago of old age, not of liver cancer. But in any case, he was a brilliant teacher and um, used the somatic discipline of deep tissue work to basically give spiritual uh, teachings uh, about non-dual reality as uh, he was taught by Sai Baba. So these were the types of things when I first got here uh, that were available. The first two work scholar months that I did you know, they were they were allowing me as a work scholar too to do the work study programs because they'd hired me so quickly. I I hadn't had any time to really participate in the educational aspect of the place. Dick Price did the first one, and it was basically you can describe it as a marathon open seat month. Mm-hmm. And then the next month. There was a teacher who I don't remember, I don't remember his name, but he didn't show up. He just didn't show up. And so Dick Price did another month, and um, it was clear that he was not prepared to do that second month, so he brought in Gregory Bateson for three or four nights, and he brought in Stan Groff. And at the time, I had no idea who these people were. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my mother, who uh, was a college professor and anthropologist, when she came and visited and saw Gregory Bateson uh, sitting out on the deck, she said, you know, you, you know who that is. And I said, yeah, that's Gregory Bateson. He and I play chess sometimes. And 
he's kind of the old grandpa of the place. And she said, no, do you know who that is? And then she proceeded to let me know that he's one of the most brilliant minds of uh, the 20th century. And his work in cybernetics has been uh, very influential in many different disciplines from sociology, anthropology, into psychology, into uh, systems theoretical and family systems uh, psychology, those branches of psychology. And, um, you know, and the same thing with Stan Groff. I had no idea who he was. And yet I had the benefit with 14 other people of having this man for a full weekend, just beginning to do his holotropic breathwork. It wasn't even called holotropic breathwork at that point in time. You know, we just laid down on mats and he played this music and we started breathing and talked about our experiences (laughs) afterwards. And, um, you know, I, I, I just thought, yeah, well, you know, this is interesting stuff. And uh, in retrospect, I realize how lucky I was to be exposed to these master teachers in the way that I was, because I think had I had I known who they were, there may have been more filters I would have yeah. put up or there would have been more sort of relational awkwardness of a certain kind. Um, I'm not sure I would have felt comfortable sitting down and playing chess with Gregory Bateson had I known who he was. And uh, yet that was, uh, there was a very personal, accessible nature to the place and to the master teachers that were living here in residence. And Dick Price... Uh, Stan Groff, uh, Al Drucker, Gregory Bateson were four of them. Did it feel like Esalen was a relatively small or contained community at the time? No, it felt like Esalen, the Esalen community was tribal in nature at the time. Uh, so nobody worked more than four days a week, and a lot of people tried to get away with three and a half and so what that led to was a great deal of unstructured time that people had for their own self-exploration, um, for hanging out together. Um, and there was a great deal of uh, music that happened back in the day uh, on warm, sunny summer days like today. It was very rare not to hear really good drumming happening. Um, And again, at the time, I didn't know it. I didn't know who these people were, but there were world-class musicians and drummers living in uh, Big Sur. Charles Lloyd, for example, the great jazz musician, had a place up on Partington Ridge, and he would often come down and uh, play the saxophone. And uh, there was a pianist named Michael Petrucciani, who uh, is just an incredible, you know, if if you saw him, you would never guess that he was a world-class musician because um, he was uh, uh, born uh, with a birth defect where his legs were paralyzed. And he was a very small man, but he had these enormously long arms and fingers. And when he got to the piano, uh, Charles Lloyd credited Michael Petrucciani with bringing him back into a love of his music. Mm. These were people that would frequent Esalen and just 
play and be, and there was a tribal quality to it, and the Big Sur native dancers evolved during that time. Um, They ended up befriending and being supported by Barclay Henry, who uh, was a a well-known uh, he's passed, but a uh, well-known Big Sur luminary and um, would often support the arts in certain ways. You know, there was a kind of a pulsing, visceral quality to the place that um, still does live on. I have a feeling it's waiting to reemerge in some way, shape, or form, you know, because I can still feel the pulse of it present here. Mm. Uh, At that point in time, that pulse was in very full bloom, and I would say I caught... In 1979, 1980, 1981, the tail end of that phase of Esalen's manifestation. And so and could you sense in the ensuing years sort of like a, a mutedness coming through? Or how did, how did the Esalen Institute evolve in the 1980s? Something that's important to understand in Esalen's evolution is that It has gone through a number of financial crises that have required it to adapt. You know, this property, there's a tremendous amount of overhead that is involved with supporting this property. And, you know, Esalen kind of exploded in the 60s and 70s, but was forced to mature in the 80s and 90s and into the 21st century. And a great deal of that maturation was forced upon the place because of, uh, you know, a place like Esalen really needs to be endowed, you know, because it's a, it's a place that is dedicated to the arts. You can think of it as the healing arts, you know. Um, my experience of it has been that it is primarily a place where people come to learn, to learn to become teachers, and to heal themselves. And it's still something that, through the work-study program, through what's offered here in the somatic arts, and uh, what, what I'm still I'm sort of the last of the Gestalt Mohicans here at this point in time, although uh, Michael Clemens does come a couple of times a year and uh, bring his uh, considerable talents uh, to the place. Um, But we still do offer a place to people where they can learn, where they can go through difficult life transitions, they can choose to move in different directions, either in their personal lives or career-wise, and uh, they can come and heal themselves. Deeply traumatized individuals come to Esalen constantly seeking self-healing, and I'm in contact with a lot of them, so I bear a very personal witness quite often to that process, both in the, the seminars that I give here and in the private practice that I uh, maintain here at this point in time in both gestalt and bodywork. How long did you stay a dishwasher? 
Well, I think I'm one of the few people in the history of the place that did back-to-back work-study twos or extended studentships. So I I was a duck in the pond for two years. Wow. And then... uh, Listening to music the whole time or what? Oh, boy. I'm not sure we should go there in this this podcast. (laughs) Enough said. Because those were wild times, and I was a very young man at that point, and... Uh, as a young man, my blood was a lot hotter than it is now. So, um, but what happened after my, uh, my baptism in the duck pond was, uh, Janet Letterman hired me to be a teacher at gazebo, which is what I did for the next three years from 1981 to 1984. And that was an extremely rich experience. I think, uh, Janet Letterman, remains um, an underappreciated contributor to uh, the importance of uh, gestalt awareness practice. Um, Janet told me this story about her first meeting with Fritz, that she watched Fritz work And she immediately recognized that what Fritz was doing with adults, she was doing with children. And that the uh, principle of organismic self-regulation, meaning there is an innate knowledge and wisdom in living organisms, in humans in particular, because of the size of, of our brains and the amount of complex information we can take in and process and learn and grow and develop from, um, that there is a great deal of potential in children that if we give them an environment through which they can make real contact with each other relationally as well as with the environment, um, that there is a potential acceleration of the development and realization and actualization of their potential that can happen if we create a an environment that's both challenging yet safe, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So we want an environment where, you know, they can climb trees and sometimes they'll fall down out of the trees and that's not so great. But, you know, inside of us, there's an innate wisdom that knows how to live, how to be in contact, how to process and simply how to be. And that, um, she said, you know, I, I have no patience with adults. I, I'm, I'm not interested and in I'll let Fritz do that part. I want to work with the kids. And uh, so she set up an environment based upon the principles of Gestalt awareness practice uh, that live on in the teachers that have gone out into the world and were just a couple of weeks ago recently here again, set up the gazebo for a couple of weeks. I was so happy to see that. There's a one teacher in particular named uh, Sophia, Sophia Snavely, I think is her last name, um, who is really keeping the fire of the gazebo burning and hopefully we'll see it reemerge uh, as a thing, not just here in Esalen, but uh, in the field of, of early childhood education. What was it like for you as a 
you're a young guy in your early 20s to spend all day with, with kids. What did it bring out in you? Well, I discovered that um, I had a very natural ability to do it. Um, it was challenging in a much different way than dishwashing. Dishwashing was physically very challenging. Um, being with kids in that way required me to learn and grow and develop as an individual because the impact of my behavior was, you know, the stakes were so much higher. If I break a dish, that's one thing. But if I do something that acts as a source of confusion in some way for a kid, that's a lot more complex to unwind. Um, so we would have weekly meetings uh, with Janet and uh, we would talk about the challenges of having such an open environment and keeping it safely structured. She was just an incredible source of information and wisdom about the nature of young developing human organisms. I will treasure those three years uh, that I was able to spend in the gazebo school and directly with Janet Letterman for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. She is an underappreciated master teacher uh, in the history of this place, in my opinion. What happened after those three years? What direction did you, did, did you feel like, yes, this is my place. I want to, I want to continue to, to live at Esalen. What was happening was, um, I have to kind of go back to the beginning. So I did the five days with David Schiffman and then I, uh, did the work study months with Dick Price and Stan Groff and, uh, Gregory Bateson. And then I noticed that there was, uh, something on the community schedule called Gestalt Practicum. So I started going to that and there was a teacher here named Janet Zuckerman, who was a student both of uh, Fritz's as well as uh, Dick Price's, who Dick basically gave, uh, he tasked her to run what was in-house programming at the time. And she, along with a woman, uh, along with a woman named Betty Dingman, Betty Dingman ran the work-study program, and Janet Zuckerman ran what was called Experiencing the Experiencing Esalen program, as well as the in-house training of facilitators, which she did through the community schedule. And so once a week, we would meet for a Gestalt practicum, and she was quite often there, and when she was not there, Dick would see to it that uh, a Gestalt uh, teacher from, usually from the Bay Area or from Los Angeles, or who was a visiting teacher doing uh, a seminar, would come in and basically teach and then supervise us working with each other. And so that was my introduction to training in Gestalt. And so fairly early on, uh, Jay-Z, Janet Zuckerman, identified me and some other people as potentially talented for this work and uh, started having me come in and assist in her experiencing Esalen groups. And then toward the end of my gazebo teachership, I had been uh, assisting with her for about two years. And she came up to me before the beginning of a weekend workshop. I still think she kind of had this planned, but 
I don't know, because she would never give me a direct answer. But we're getting ready to go into what is now um, Rolf. At the time, the meeting room was called Thyro, and said, you know, I have a really bad headache, and I can't do this group. You're going to do this group along with my partner at the time. Her name was Maria Lucia Sauer. And um, so we kind of looked at each other and went, okay. (laughs) And that was the beginning of my career as a group leader. That was in 1984. Mm -hmm. And um, so we did that group. We we kind of found our way through it. And um, we found that we really had an aptitude for it and uh, began to lead experiencing Esalen groups and work study months all the way up till... 1989. And so I transitioned out of my work at the gazebo briefly into, I was for about 12 or 14 months a cook in the kitchen because I still wasn't sure this group leading thing was going to support me. And I thought I still needed an excellent job. But after about 14 months, I realized, no, I'm a group leader. I'm a teacher. I'm a healing artist. That's what I do. I have to focus on this to become I have to dedicate my life to it in order to become really, really good and competent at it. Now, you say healing artist. So had you begun your bodywork journey by that time? Yes, I was working part-time both on the massage crew as well as in what were the 23 rooms doing deep tissue work. Uh-huh. Um, and when I could fit sessions in between my gazebo time and then afterwards my uh, cooking shifts, I would do that. But there really wasn't enough time, you know, as a as a part-time healer and teacher that at a certain point one needs to decide and uh, so I decided um, fully in 1986 that I was going to uh, quit my staff jobs at Uslan and just be uh, a teacher and a healing artist here at Uslan and um, that coincided with a very fortunate um opportunity to buy a piece of property close by here, which I now live on with uh, my wife and built a home up there. It was a trailer at the time, but that gave me a place to live, which, you know, housing has always been uh, Mm -hmm. an issue here at Esalen, trying to figure out how to be in Big Sur. And that gave me an affordable opportunity just to be in Big Sur, be a Big Sur resident and uh, focus on the healing arts. Yeah, so tell me about your, I'm really curious about your, your bodywork journey. What, what started you in that, and what was the climate of bodywork at Esalen when you began? The massage crew was, I would say, a force of nature <laughs> at the time when I first got here. It was, uh, one would go down to the baths, and at that point in time, I think for, still for about a year, 79 and 80, um, all of the practitioners were working naked. You know, there was still kind of a remnant of the perspective that um, John Hyder came and and led uh, a staff week one time and described exactly what it is that I'm trying to describe at the moment. He said, you know, in the 60s, 
and into the 70s, we started from the premise that everything that we had learned in this life was a lie. Mm -hmm. And that through doing inquiry-based work, and in some cases, uh, uh, confrontive gestalt type of work combined with rolfing and um, combined with other forms of exploration, we could break through the structures of habit that kept our perception in a very narrow band, and we could break out of that and uh, begin again to evolve as a species and realize our true potential. And so when one went down to the baths and was in the field of the massage practitioners at that point of t- in time, that perspective was very palpable, mm-hmm. really palpable. There was a sense of... I'm kind of entering this really juicy, somatically-based twilight zone here. Right. Right? Yeah. And then, um, you know, the massages, of course, at that point in time, it, it was very difficult to find that quality and that type of awareness-based, presence-based type of bodywork anywhere else in the world. You had to come here to uh, experience it. Now, that's no longer the case because so many teachers have gone out in the world and have educated people from China to Indonesia to the heart of Europe, etc. So, you know, one can find this now globally. But um, this was the place that birthed the massage industry Mm. in the world. And those were the people, the Peggy Harans and the Deborah Meadows and the Brita Ostroms and the the George Kings, a lot of people that, you know, are no longer with us. Uh, They were all uh, working down there. And the interesting thing was that They would also invite visiting teachers who were just brilliant teachers in their own right and brilliant somatic artists in their own right. And they would come and they would work with people on the massage crew. You know, they would do classes just for us. And you would immediately see this information gaining access to the form. So Esalen Massage was like, um, you could think of it as like an open source form that was presence-based and long-stroking-based, but the um, the enthusiasm for experimentation has always been really, really high in that form. It's what continues to make it what I consider an evolutionarily-based form within the industry, because we still got those kinds of teachers coming in and adding information to what it is that we do. And then you'll see people, you know, doing cranial work at the end of their sessions, you know, holding people's heads and because they've, you know, gone on to mastery in that discipline and begin to create sort of a hybrid form between yeah. the the two. And uh, it's just, it's something that that is still, the pulse of that is still happening. And the tribal nature of it back in 79, 80, 81 was was literally palpable within the ethers of the baths complex. What, what aspect of the of the work 
did you find yourself drawn to, I mean, you're known for deep body work, obviously now you and your wife, Johanna teach, uh, a very popular deep body work, uh, series. Um, and I'm curious, was that what you were immediately drawn to or were there other things that, that got your attention? I, w- I was immediately drawn to everything <laughs> that I was exposed to when I got here from gestalt to Esalen massage to deep tissue work, which is what Al Drucker called his work, um, to acupuncture, homeopathy, um, five rhythms dance. You know, uh, when I first got here, um, I started dancing in 79, 80, and 81 with Gabrielle Roth before she was Gabrielle Roth. And um, there were like 20, 25 people in her classes. Five Rhythms was not. Five Rhythms was an, a warm-up exercise that we did uh, on our way to doing what she called ritual theater at that point in time. So I was attracted to everything. What I spent my time focusing on, because I had to choose just as a matter of time, was deep tissue work, gestalt, and esalen massage. Those were the three disciplines that I focused on myself. So you're making a distinction between the deep tissue work and and esalen massage. So when you were doing an esalen massage at that time, you kind of abstained from the deep tissue. Yeah, and there was a much clearer... um, uh, boundary between the two. And it was really interesting because at that point in time, you know, the deep tissue people, they'd kind of look at the Esalen massage people and go, you know, all they're doing is spreading oil. And the Esalen massage people would go, boy, those deep tissue people are dangerous. And (laughs) so there was all of this stuff going on, not just you know, here within the community, but you'd see it between the different teachers that would come. It's like then Moshe Feldenkrais's people would come through and no one could really figure out what it was they were doing. But uh, one one gentleman who was a teacher for the Feldenkrais Guild, you know, announced in a, uh, on a Wednesday night presentation that this is the most important, most effective form of somatic therapy the world has ever seen and likely ever will see. So there was a lot of narcissism built into everyone's sort of investment and in whatever approach they were yeah. they were embodying. But um, what what I began to notice, you know, I, I noticed the Traeger people and the acupuncturists and the Esalen massage people and the, the deep tissue people. I began to notice that All of these approaches were effective, but not all practitioners of all of the approaches were effective. Mm. So I began to look more deeply at what is it that the practitioners who are effective are doing that is common to these different forms. And I came up with a couple of things that um, I noticed. One was that All of these different forms are effective only when they're presence-based. So the practitioners who could drop into a presence-based state when they were working were much more likely to evoke that kind of a state in the people that they were working on. And 
um, a lot of modern research has demonstrated that when we drop into meditative states where the actual functioning of the brain begins to change, um, physical healing, physical processes of healing, self-organizing and healing can happen much more quickly and much more easily mm. when um, someone is in that type of a state. And if the practitioner is in that kind of a state, there's a transmission kind of an experience that will often happen with the person that's being touched. So, you know, I would see some practitioners who I would watch constantly looking at the clock and obviously I'm getting bored and I'm ready for lunch, I'm ready for a break. And there wasn't a presence-based quality to what they were doing quite often. So that was one thing that I noticed. The other thing that I noticed, which is was even more revealing to me, was the people that were getting really good results really liked what they were doing. You know? So it's like um, if you like playing a certain kind of a musical instrument or you like sculpting or you like painting, you know, you will follow that art to its annihilating edge to where you you achieve a level, level of mastery of it. But, but what's necessary is a love of that art. Right. Yeah. So I noticed the the people that were getting good results, like watching Milton Trader demonstrate, it was just so obvious that he was in love with this art of touch. And he could do things with what he was doing that other people who were trying to do it from their heads, they just couldn't they couldn't achieve the same results. But some people could. Because there was a sense of, wow, this is this is really my thing. I really like doing this. And there's something about that attitude that, even beyond presence, brings a kind of an expansive joy and sense of connectedness mm-hmm. to the art, which leads to a kind of mastery. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I began to see through these sort of internecine quarrels that different, you know, the Rolfers thought they were the best thing since sliced bread, and so did the Feldenkrais practitioners, so did the Eslam massage practitioners, and there, there were always these ongoing debates about which was better, which was a completely false debate. Was there a large con- contingent of Rolfers, that Rolfing having been born or at least popularized at Esalen? There was, you know, um, Ida Rolf came to Esalen and uh, Dick Price told me that when Ida first got here, she had been working, developing Rolfing for 25, 30 years by the time she came to Esalen, but she hadn't, she'd only taught a couple of people Mm. how to Rolf. And um, Fritz Perls was suffering from uh, tremendous chronic back pain when she got here. And she said to Fritz, I think I can help you with that. And so she rolfed him into or out of his back pain. And of course, 
after she did that, everybody wanted to become a rolfer. Everybody wanted to learn rolfing. And so she created the 10 sessions of rolfing as a way of teaching people how to do what it is that she's doing. There wasn't, uh, you know, there was a general approach that you can see the 10 sessions in. That's how they, they emerged out of what she was doing. Like you got to free the breath first in order to work deeply on someone. Then you move down and do some work on the hips, and then you need to open up the feet. And right, so you can see the 10 sessions kind of built into, but uh, she created them as a way of teaching people how to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. And so there were a number of people here. Um, but, you know, she taught a lot of the most brilliant teachers of Rolfing and brilliant people tend to not want to stay within the structure of a school. Mm. And so people like Al Drucker, people like Joe Heller, to name two, went on to create their own uh, approaches to these different to this same art. And uh, I had the benefit of uh, studying with Al and what what my wife and I have done, um, we started doing this when we were still living in Germany, uh, but we developed it fully when we got here is, you know, we realized that this whole thing about which approach is better is complete nonsense. And um, what we did was we created a form where we have combined the deeply therapeutic nature of deep tissue work with the aesthetic integrating nature of Esalen massage into a form called deep body work. Mm -hmm. So we've taken the information from deep tissue work and we've broken it down in a different way such that people can learn slowly aspects of that work and include it immediately into their massage practice um, and make it available on a much wider basis to uh, people in their massage practices because not everybody's going to take, has the time or money to go do a rolfing training and then figure out how to translate that work into what it is that they're already doing. You seem to have a devoted group of um, students who I always see, you teach about three or four uh, modules a year here? Four modules a year, yeah. I see the same people coming. Right. You know, they're really... Yeah, it's like a band, a band of practitioners. It's a tribe, really. And um, I keep using that word because there's something about the uh, connectedness that a community of people begins to feel when they're involved in um, a common task together over time. And the deep body work program is a program now with its own, uh, levels of certification from practitioner to advanced practitioner to teacher. Mm. And the reason you're seeing people coming over and over and over again, as they're uh, working their way through those different levels. So coming back to where you were at during this time, I guess we we're in the mid to late eighties. Was there a point at which you noticed sort of like a, a change in yourself as you took on more responsibility, as you absorbed the teachings of the place? What was, what was happening for you during that time? Well, I was teaching more and more and, um, you know, 
After Dick's death in uh, 1985, the uh, emphasis on Gestalt training here changed completely because um, Dick had a gravitas, of course, that if he wanted a Gestalt program going here, there was going to be a Gestalt program yes. going here. And uh, after he died, um, there was kind of a natural questioning period of what are we doing? What are we doing at, um, you know, the level of in-house training? And some different perspectives started to come into the place in terms of how that affected gestalt training here at Esalen. Um, we no longer had, uh, for instance, uh, weekly community groups or uh, something called the leaders group that was going on for a couple of years here. And there were attempts to keep this kind of in-house training going, but they didn't have the same kind of institutional support uh, that they had pre-1985. I was teaching more and more and more up until about 1989. Then I had my own sort of personal insight that actually I needed to go out into the world at that point. And uh, in order to, I just knew sort of intuitively that my next level of development, it was like I was still living at my parents' house or something, being here at Esalen, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, and so um, I fell in love with uh, a woman who's a German, who's my current wife, Johanna, and uh, followed her to Germany. And I lived and worked in Germany from 1990 to 1996. I, I pretty immediately got hired by one of the Gestalt Institutes over in Germany. So I had, we started a massage school over there as well as I was working through the Gestalt Institute of Dortmund. And it was a very rich time in my development because I collaborated with a man uh, who's now deceased, who um, was not only a Gestaltist, trained by one of Fritz Perl's students who had lived at Esalen way back in the uh, 60s. But uh, so we had this common Esalen connection between the two of us, but he was a teacher for the Psychodrama Institute. And what I learned about the history of Gestalt was that Fritz Perls um, had taken quite a bit of the role-playing kind of work that was pioneered by uh, Jacob Moreno, who was the creator of psychodrama, and incorporated it into Gestalt and actually presented a lot of it as original. Um, but really, it was inspired by uh, the work of the open chair, or what we call open seat here at Esalen, that was pioneered by Jacob Moreno. Mm -hmm. The open chair was a technique that he used to, you know, if, if one was doing a piece of psychodrama and there was another character implicit in the room, he would say, well, let's 
let's bring your colleague in here out of your imagination and actually into the room and let's put him or her into the open chair Yes. and see what they, let's dialogue with them. So who would bring in somebody from the group to play a role? Well, sometimes there would be a person in the group that would actually then do that. But other times there, there would just be an empty chair And uh, the, the protagonist of the work, that whoever was doing the work themselves, would go back and forth and actually uh-huh. be themselves and then be the other person and yes. then be themselves again. And when uh, Fritz witnessed that, he recognized the potency of that technique, mm-hmm. um, that it really brought people into experiential contact with things to to embody things in that way and brought it out of the realm of the mind right into physical reality mm-hmm. and uh, that became a big part of how Fritz uh, did gestalt work and so when I was over in Germany and witnessing how this man was doing role play kind of work I immediately just lights went off for me in terms of my understanding about what I had been learning in a much less structured way here at Esalen. So I collaborated with him for five or six years. And uh, then my wife and I moved back to Esalen in 1996. And we started our second phase of um, our living and uh, teaching here uh, at Esalen at that point in time. Was it a challenge at all to, to be doing this work in, in German? Yes and no. In the beginning, it was. But uh, it took me about six months to really become fluent in German. And one of the things that I noticed was uh, there were just certain things that um, I could communicate in German that weren't possible in English and vice versa. Um, so I, I really liked and still continue to like uh, speaking and teaching in German. And people will often tell me, they'll say, you know, Perry, you're different when you speak German. Uh-huh, yeah. I'm not sure which one I like better. Right? <laughs> Both of you have different qualities, the English-speaking Perry and the German-speaking yeah. Perry. And it's interesting because my uh, internal experience shifts a little bit when I move from one language to the other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so when you came back for, for phase two, what was your role within the, the Esalen community? You know, fairly quickly, uh, of course, I uh, began working uh, back here as both a body worker and a facilitator fairly quickly. And I noticed um, in some way, shape or form, uh, because I had been here during the days when Gregory Bateson and Gabrielle Roth, before she was Gabrielle Roth, and Dick Price and Stan Groff were, were much more a part of the place, um, I had kind of this um, sort of uh, senior person kind of status. Like I, I had... Uh, I was holding some form of the legacy uh, of the place. And I noticed people um, would relate to me very much in that way. Um, And there was a great deal of curiosity about my experiences when I first got here and my experiences of people like who I mentioned 
you know, what it was like to be in their presence and what I learned from them. So I was integrated into uh, both a facilitator as well as a healing arts teacher role uh, quite quickly that I would say gathered real momentum in 2000, 2001. And I was working doing quite because I'd lived in Europe and I'd started a number of different um, basically schools, I would say, where I was teaching different disciplines in different places. So I was spending, I would say, about a quarter of the year traveling at that point internationally and about three quarters of the year uh, here at Esalen teaching and in private practice. Now, one thing we haven't talked about yet is the the journey of being a father. You know, I've, I've met your, your daughter, Maya, and I know your, your son, Nico, quite well. And I'm curious how you think the experience of being intertwined in this community for so many years shaped the way that you became a father. You know, I was very fortunate to have the gazebo uh, for both of those children. Um, and particularly for my first child, Maya, you know, I was 23 years old when she was born and I, I was like, whoa, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and, uh, Janet Letterman was there and a woman named Leah Thompson and a bunch of other gazebo teachers. And I had been working at the gazebo for a couple of years at that point. So, I knew about being with kids, but I didn't know about being a father to uh, interrelated but not but distinct things. So I was um, like any young parent, deeply affected by the sense of responsibility that just is an inherent emergent property of becoming a parent. Um, with my second kid, I was much more prepared for that experience than with the first one. <laughs> the value of having learned how to allow a child to be, and as a parent to be present with, be in presence with a child, no matter what they're going through, whether they're just sitting and drawing and being creative and sort of minding their own business and not wanting to be bothered to, you know, moving through something developmental that is difficult and requires both a, an understanding of how to be there and not to be there in such a way that interferes with their learning, growth and development. Um, is one of the enduring gifts that Janet Letterman mm. gave me and others uh, with whom she came in contact. Mm. I would love to to talk about at least two more things. What What is the state of Gestalt here now? And I was wondering if you could describe this training program, I believe it was, that you, that you wanted to speak about. Gestalt... Um, at Esalen, you know, there there's a long legacy of Gestalt. At first, it was defined by uh, Fritz Perls, and then after Fritz, by um, some of his primary trainees like Claudio Naranjo, uh, John Hyder, and then of course Dick Price. And there was a long period of time where. 
there were two streams of Gestalt that were happening at Esalen. One that was representative of the initiator reflector, very pure, purely awareness-based Gestalt that is the basis of Gestalt awareness practice and the kind of work that Chris Price continues to teach. Mm-hmm. And then there was also... Um, a stream that one could describe as encounter-based and was uh, based in the work of Will Schutz and his work with uh, groups and organizations that uh, one can think of as more uh, confrontive in nature. Awareness and presence were also primary aspects of the way he approached his work, but there was also a great deal of emphasis placed on working with defense, with ego defense, and uh, the necessity of getting defense through the practice of awareness to shift and change such that that which was authentic in man could come through, right? And so uh, the one approach was, I would call, um, more of a yin-style approach, and the other approach is more of a yang, a lot more active intervention, confrontation. The woman that taught me uh, was taught in both streams, uh, Janet Zuckerman, but she had a certain love for the... um, the, the more yang approach. So th- these two types of streams have been present in the stream of Gestalt in its history at Esalen since Gestalt first arrived here. You could see both streams. It's really interesting in Fritz's work. If you watch the old tapes, there are, there are times where he is just purely a reflector of someone's experience, and other times where he'll make an intervention that one also one wants to almost cover their eyes and go, I can't believe he just said that to that person, you know, because of its bluntness. My interest in um, continuing the stream of Gestalt teaching at Esalen is to both honor that which was and to begin to incorporate also that which is Gestalt in the world now. Gestalt is more than Fritz Perls. Gestalt at Esalen is more than Fritz Perls and Dick Price. And Gestalt owes its legacy to a great degree, both here and everywhere, to Fritz and to people like Dick. And yet, just as Esalen Massage um, owes its continued development or will rely on a kind of an open-sourced perspective where learning from new sources, new approaches... Uh, different perspectives will be an incredibly important part of keeping it a rich and relevant tradition within the healing arts without losing its history. The same is true of Gestalt. One of the things that 
we want to bring into uh, this new program, which uh, the name will be Integrative Body Process, a Gestalt-based approach to individual and uh, group dynamic facilitation and um, holistic leadership, is bringing back the uh, somatic practice into the practice of Gestalt. So one sees, for instance, uh, in the work of someone like Peter Levine. Uh, Peter was deeply influenced by Fritz Perls and by his friendship with Dick Price. When, when I first got here uh, in 79 and 80, uh, Peter was in the process of healing himself here. Uh, and he came and lived in residence for about six months at one point and was doing, gosh, I can almost say almost daily work <laughs> with Dick. Mm. And the awareness-based practice of Gestalt has a great deal to do with the presence and awareness-based practice of somatic experiencing. This was before somatic experiencing had been developed. What I think is missing in uh, Gestalt training at this point, and one of the things that I want to uh, bring back into it is the movement-based, the touch-based, the breath-based somatic practice of awareness practice itself. Uh, it's one of the reasons why in the title we didn't want to use the term Gestalt itself, because we also wanted to signify you know, there's a turning toward uh, the wisdom of the body uh, in this work um, in the same way that people like Suzanne Skurlach-Durana uh, is presenting her work, that it's primarily a touch-based touch kind of an approach. You know, we, we want to bring the cortical field re-education people into this program to do a piece because uh, one of the most brilliant gestaltists ever trained by um, Fritz, her name was Alana Rubenfeld, and she created a kind of work called the Rubenfeld Method, which is a combination of Feldenkrais work and gestalt work that she learned from Fritz. And Fritz said to her, you will, you will become the pioneer of the combination of these two uh, great streams. And uh, this is a kind of an orientation that we want to bring back into the awareness practice of Gestalt itself and hopefully, um, you know, train a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of bright young people here right now. Yeah. And uh, I would like to see them become the facilitators of the future, training them in Esalen massage and training them in deep body work and exposing them to people like Harriet Goslin's and uh, uh, Suzanne Skurlock-Durana and learning how to support people and the unfolding of the continuum of awareness, which is one of the basic core teachings in Gestalt. All of these things together, I think, can create a modern iteration of a Gestalt-based training here that uh, has great potential moving into the future. Yeah, so Perry, I was wondering if you could uh, talk about the, the new Esalen Massage Teacher Training Program that's going on here, which is a new thing, is it not? It is a new thing. Um, 
as a structured training being offered through the catalog. This curriculum has been offered once before as a pilot program in Europe, in Germany. And um, one, as a matter of fact, one of our teachers here, uh, Carl, um, went and uh, did that training, which uh, I taught along with Deborah Meadow, Dean Morrison, and uh, Brita Ostrom, uh, both in Germany as well as here. That went well, and because that went well, we are now able to present this program through the catalog here. It's going to be starting October 21st. It's going to happen in three modules. And what has been missing in Esalen, in the Esalen massage curriculum, has been a structured teacher training program. Yeah. Um, teacher training used to happen in what I would call sort of an Eastern transmission-oriented type of teaching, which was uh, one would assist in enough workshops over time, and at a certain point, through some mysterious process, one was anointed teacher. And, uh, <laughs> and that created some really brilliant teachers and some other people that clearly needed to have had some more structure to uh, what it was they were learning. And so in this program, we're attempting to provide both. Okay. The um, structured piece is going to happen in three modules over a period of a year, three 12-day modules, where different basic aspects of what is important in teaching anything uh, are going to be taught and practiced and, of course, focused upon teaching the healing art of vessel and massage. This group is coming from all over the world. We have some Balinese coming from Indonesia. We have a couple of students coming from China. Of course, a great deal of people who have been trained in Esalen Massage from the United States and a number of people that work on the massage crew here, people from Europe. Uh, it's going to be a, an international teacher training. And I'm doing it along with Peggy Haran, and we'll have some, some other teachers assisting us along the way. After the three modules are over, that's when we will move into a kind of an apprenticeship phase of the teacher training that honors the deep wisdom that comes out of the transmission-based type of learning that can only happen when one is in the field of a master teacher, witnessing, watching, uh, demonstrating in front of the group, in front of the master teacher, right? So we're, we're attempting to combine the, fill in the theoretical and structural gaps that have historically been missing in Esalen massage teacher training and yet combining that with the the depth and the power of the transmission-based mentorship model which uh, was the way that things have historically happened here. Well, great. Do you have time for just a couple, like a lightning round? Sure. Questions? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> what, what, what's a self-care ritual that you have that keeps you looking so young and good? Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I would say there are two. Uh, one is very straightforward. My wife and I uh, go into town and do Bikram yoga uh, 
four or five times a week, which is a big commitment because it takes us over an hour each way. Not that I'm saying everybody should do that, but I have kind of a more stiffly constructed body and the heat in Bikram really helps my flexibility and we both really enjoy that. The other thing um, that I would say is uh, my wife and I lead an inquiry-based life together where we take a lot of time for the type of self-inquiry and self-exploration that's at the heart of what is Gestalt awareness practice. And um, there is a deep and abiding respect, love, and appreciation, not just for each other, but for this life that has come out of that, that I would say it's similar to what I was saying about body work. You got to like it to be good at it. You know, (laughs) it's, I really love being alive and I really love being in partnership with my wife. And I really love the process of self inquiry and dedicating myself to the love of truth. And these are things that keep me awakening, uh, more and more, as I progress through this life. So what's one of your secret superpowers? Like (laughs) what's something that you're really good at that not people, people don't really know about Perry. Well, I don't know. I think a lot of people are kind of getting to know, but, um, when I do my work, you know, I tell people up front, I listen as much to the way you, you say something as to what you're actually saying. And so, If I ask you how you're doing and you go, good, good, good. I notice that your body and your vocal cords are saying two different things, right? And so one of the ways, I I guess you could call it a superpower that I bring into my work is if I can get that verbal expression and the body language to be congruent such that the body supports what's being expressed verbally. That's one way of looking at the way that I work. So that person that went, good, good. Well, you know, actually I'm having a pretty hard day right now. That's what's really going on. And all of a sudden it's, wow, the body and the words, they're supporting each other. Yes. Right. So I'd say that's a, that, Mm. that could be considered a superpower that I have. (laughs) How do you make body work still uh, interesting and fulfilling for you. How, first of all, how much body work do you do these days and, and how do you keep it fresh? Um, well, one way that I keep it fresh is um, that I mostly only work on uh, special cases at this point in time. So that remains tremendously interesting to me. So I'm working with a young man here who has a uh, thoracic outlet issues with one of his shoulders and um, because he is deeply interested in the internal work involved in self-organization right I'm able to work on him and people like him from the perspective of I'm not the healer, I'm the facilitator. You are the healer of your body. I provide an opportunity for you to self-witness and self-experience that's unique through 
the interventions of touch that I use. So I can bring your mind to places in your body that are very difficult to get to by yourself. And when the light of your awareness goes off there, your body does the healing. Your being does the healing, not me. Mm -hmm. So I'm the facilitator. I'm the point of reference around which that can happen. And that's a tremendously fascinating process to be a part of. And again, it goes back to because I like doing that, it's always fresh. It's almost like each... Um, session is more interesting than the last, even though it's just as interesting in Philippe, but it feels more because it's <laughs> present and happening right now, right? That's cool. Yeah. Your son made the, the theme for this uh, podcast. Do you share a, a musical sort of proclivity or... or um, this is a better question. What kind of proclivities do you share with your, your son? Um, you know, my son's a really unique, uh, individual and witnessing his path in this life has been really, uh, a privilege. Um, he went through a period in middle school and high school where, uh, he had autoimmune eczema that was quite extreme and really kept him from being a participant in teenagerhood in a way that uh, was very painful to witness at that point in time. Um, but what it also did was it accelerated his development as a self-aware individual. And he is someone who shares love of truth with his mother and with his father. And we will inquire together mm -hmm. as a family mm -hmm. in ways that um, I find really, really special. And so I would say love of truth and, of course, playing guitar is something that he and I both love to do. And he, uh, his love of music is... Um, much more evolved and actualized than mine because he's really dedicating his life to that right now. And as you could see, I could never have designed the music for a podcast like he did, but he did it in like a couple of hours and it was like, wow, that's really good. <laughs> so uh, I'm just proud of him and, um, you know, witnessing his development as a human being has been, um, yeah, it's been a sacred experience really. Just one more question. You're, uh, a very accomplished individual, and I'm I'm wondering, do you have a thing or two left on your bucket list of something that you'd like to accomplish or grow towards in your uh, second half of your life? Well, second half of my life—that's a nice way. I'm going to be 120, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning 60 this year. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll bite on that. I, I like that perspective. Um, certainly by the time I'm 70, um, I would like to be moving into a practicing phase of my life again, where uh, hopefully I will have the luxury of enough unstructured time 
that uh, I can do that and I can um, go study with someone like Dan Brown for, uh, you know, a couple of years and uh, learn what it's like to move through what he calls the elephant path toward the Dharmakaya. And uh, I'm very interested in the process of not just self-realization, but the actualization of self-realization in this life, what it's like to live as a self-realized individual in ordinary life, Mm -hmm. in family life. Um, Yeah. And to really have time for that practice and, you know, turn the reins of teacherhood and all of that over to the next generation in a good way and uh, look back and go, yeah, it's in good hands. I can, I can let go now. (laughs) Yeah. Perry Holloman, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.